Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you find yourself in the part of this planet. My name remains Ade Balogun. I welcome you to Atlantic Discourse. At Atlantic Discourse, we discuss the facts always. That's why we're here again with another extremely interesting and juicy topic. Today we're talking about Rwanda because we want to, you know, empirically look at why Rwanda has been a bastion of stability. We're looking at Rwanda under Kagame, a bastion of hope and stability in East Africa. So that's what we're going to look at today. I'm sure a lot of you will enjoy the topic. Kagame has been consistent. A lot has happened in the country, but despite the limitations of Rwanda as a landlocked country, they've been able to, you know, break barriers and slip stereotypes, you know. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So as you all know, Atlanta discussed to always embrace all facets of humanity to disseminate positive news with the world filled with a lot of bad news. We give a voice to the unheard always. We balance the information equation. We search and discuss the facts wherever it leads us. And we combine the best of the human race to get the best out of mankind. You know, we serve as a bridge between the developing and the developed world. We embrace business, politics, arts, health, history, and faith-based issues. We never shy away from the fact. So in search of the fact, we went to Rwanda today, and we are here in Kigali, looking at what makes Kagame that, that shining star on top of the hill. What makes Rwanda that not constant northern star in Africa, despite all its limitations, despite all the wars it has fought. You know, Rwanda is as consistent as the northern star, economically, social, economic issues, cultural issues, economic, deep, deep economic issues. They, they're just a bunch of uh, people that we have to admire, considering all they've gone through. So we're going to divide it into three, four segments. We're actually doing four segments. The first part will be, first segment A will be history of Rwanda, the politics of Rwanda, the economy. That's the first part, which is divided into history of Rwanda, politics of Rwanda, and the economy. You know, that's three. The, the fourth and the PB part will be the man Kagame himself and the successes of his government. So that's what we're going to look at. So we all know that... Uh, the Berlin Conference of 1884 assigned the territory, the territory called Rwanda today to the German Empire, and they declared it as part of the German East African region at that time, making the, the beginning of uh, the colonial era for them. You know, so the Germans did not significantly alter the social cultural system of the country, but they exerted influence by supporting the king, the existing hierarchy, all the other monarchies, and they delegated power to the local chiefs. Now, Belgians took control of Rwanda and Burundi in 1916 during the First World War, you know, beginning a period of more direct colonial rule. Belgium ruled both Rwanda and Burundi as a League of Nations mandate called Rwanda and Urundi at that time. So the Belgians also simplified and centralized the power structure and introduced large-scale projects in education, air, public water, and what have you. you know, so both the Germans and the Belgians, in the wake of new imperialism, promoted Tutsi supremacy. Mark my word there, Tutsi supremacy. As we go along, you see where we got to the genocide, how it happened and all that. So considering the Hutu and Tutsi different races, in 1935, Belgium introduced identity cards labeling each individual as either Tutsi or Hutu or Twa or, or, or naturalized. While it has been previously, uh, it, let's put it this way, while it has been previously been possible for a particular wealthy Utu to become an honorary Tutsi, the identity card prevents any further movement between the classes. So in a nutshell, it was Belgium that created who was Tutsi, Hutu, Tua, naturalized, whatever you call it. So 
Belgium continued to rule Rwanda and Urundi, what you call Rwanda and Burundi today, of which Rwanda formed the northern part and the UN Trust Territory and after the Second World War with a mandate to observe eventual independence. Tension escalated between the Tutsi, who favored uh, early independence, and the Hutu Emancipation Movement, culminating in 1959 Rwanda Revolution. Now, that's not the, the genocide of 1991-92 period. This is a completely different story. So, now, in 1959, the Rwanda Revolution came about. So, Hutu activists began killing Tutsis and destroying their houses, forcing more than 100,000 people to seek refuge in neighboring countries. So, in 1961, the suddenly pro Hutu Belgians held a referendum in which the country voted to abolish the monarchy. Rwanda was separated from Burundi and gained independence 1st of July in 1962, which commemorated as Independence Day today, a national holiday like in most African countries and other countries of the world. So cycle of violence followed, which exiled to, to see attacking from neighboring countries and Hutu retaliating with large-scale slaughter and repression of the Tutsi. So in 1973, juvenile Abiyarimana, remember that name, that was the president that they killed that led to the genocide in, in the 90s. So juvenile Abiyarimana took power in a military coup. Pro-Hutu discrimination continued, but there was greater economic prosperity and reduced the amount of violence against the Tutsi. So Rwanda population had increased from 1.6 million in 1934 to 7.1 million in 1989 leading to competition for land. So clearly, in 1990, the Rwanda Patriotic Front, RPF, a rebel group composed of nearly 500,000 Tutsi refugees, invaded northern Rwanda from their base in Uganda, initiating the Rwandan uh, Civil War. That's the war we're talking about, the popular one. That started in 1990. The group condemned the Hutu-dominated government for failing to democratize and confront the problem facing these refugees. Neither side was able to gain a decisive advantage in the war. But by 1992, it had weakened Abiyarimana's authority. Mass demonstration forced him into a coalition with domestic opposition and eventually to sign the 1993 Arusha Accord with the RPF. The ceasefire ended up ended in, uh, that was uh, 6 April 1994, when Abiyarimana's plane was shot down near Kigali Airport, killing him. The shooting down of the plane served as a catalyst for the Rwandan genocide, which began within a few hours. Over the course of approximately 100 days, between 500,000 and 1 million Tutsi and politically moderate Hutus were killed in a well-planned attack on the orders of the interim government. Many Tua were also killed, despite not being directly targeted. The Tutsi RPF restated the offensive and took control of the country methodically, gaining control of the whole country by mid-July. The international response to the genocide was limited, with major powers reluctant to strengthen the already outstretched peacekeeping force then domiciled in Kigali. So when the RPF took over, approximately 2 million Hutu fled to neighboring countries, in particular Zaire, now Congo, Kinshasa, fearing reprisal. Additionally, the RPF-led army was a key belligerent in the first and second Congo war. Within uh, Rwanda, a period of reconciliation and justice began with the establishment of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, that is the ICTR, and the reintroduction of Gakaka, the traditional village court system. Since 2000, Rwanda's economy, tourist numbers, and human development index have grown rapidly. Between 2006 and 2011, the poverty rate 
reduced from 57% to 45%, while life expectancy rose from 46.6 years in 2000 to 65.4 years in 2001. So, clearly, that's just a brief summary of their history, and you can see where they're coming from, how they got independent, initially a German colony, subsequent to Belgium, Belgium decided who was Hutu Tutsi, and, you know, the rest is history. Somebody gave them stability. That's why we're talking about Rwanda. So the politics of Rwanda, the system of the, the president of Rwanda is the head of state. They have broad powers, including creative policies in conjunction with the uh, cabinet, exercising prerogative of mercy, commanding the armed forces, signing presidential orders, and so on and so forth. Now, they have the parliament. This consists of two chambers. It makes legislation and is empowered by the constitution to oversee the activities of the president and cabinet. So this the way it's done in most countries of the world, right? So now we're talking about the man Kagame, you know. I mean, we, we have to look at what Kagame has done for them as a country. You know, we have looked at the history, I look at the politics. Yeah, before I even talk about Kagame, I can always, let's, maybe we should just look at the economic area of the country because economically, I'm still going to talk about the economy, but I'm talking about what they carry, what the load they have, their values, they attach to the economy. For example, Rwanda's economy suffered heavily during the 1994 genocide with widespread loss of life, failure to maintain infrastructure, looting and all that, you know. So the economy has since strengthened with capital nominal GDP estimated at $909.9 .9 in 2022 compared to $127 .9 in nineteen. Ninety-four. You can see the growth. So major exports include uh, major export markets include China, Germany, United States. The economy is managed by the National Bank of Rwanda. That's what you call the central bank. The currency is the Rwandan franc. So in December 2019, the exchange rate was nine ten francs to one United States dollar. Rwanda joined the East African Community in 2007 and has ratified a plan for monetary union, which could eventually lead to a common currency among them. So Rwanda is a country of few natural resources and the economy is based mostly on sufficient agriculture by local farmers using simple tools and what have you. So subsistence crop they have matoki, potatoes, beans, sweet potato, cassava, you know, maize and what have you. The industrial small sector, which contributes 14.8% of the GDP in 2014, produce manufacturers that include cement, agricultural, small scale beverage, so yeah. There's nothing really, not unlike Nigeria, Ghana, that have oil and all that. Minerals mined includes cassiterite, wolframite, a little bit of gold and coal tank, which is used in the manufacture of electronics and uh, communication devices, such, such as mobile phones. Some of the reasons why you see our war here and there. Rwanda's service sector suffered during the late 2000 recession. A bank lending, uh, foreign aid project and investment were reduced. So the, se the sector rebounded in 2010 becoming the country's largest sector by economic output and contributing 43.6% of the country's GDP. The key tertiary contributors, you know, include banking and finance. So, clearly you see that they don't have too much resources. That's why they are working double hard to make sure they get everything done. So, let's look at the man Kagame. Paul Kagame was born 23rd October 1957, youngest of six in uh, Tambwe, you know, in Rwanda, or Rudi, as it was called then. A village located in what is now the south pro southern province of Rwanda. His father, Idiogoritas Rotawamba, was a member of the Tutsi ethnic group. We all know he is Tutsi, clearly. So, because that's why he led the RPF and other groups, and you know. So, from which the royal family has been derived since the 18th century or earlier. So, he has royal blood in him. A member of the beggar clan, 
you know so his father had family ties to king mutara mutara the third but he pursued the independent business career rather than maintain a close connection to the royal family so kagama's mother asteria bizinda descended from the family of the last rwandan queen rosali gikanda so you can see that on father's side and mother's side uh, kagame actually has a royal blood in him so at the time of kagame's birth rwanda was a, a united nation trust territory which has been ruled in various forms by Belgium since 1916, under 1916, under a mandate to oversee eventual independence. Rwanda were made up of three distinct groups. The minority Tutsi, like I said earlier, you know, were the traditional ruling class. The Belgian colonialists had long promoted Tutsi supremacy, while the majority Hutu were agriculturists. The third group, the Tua, were forest-dwelling pygmy people descended from Rwanda, earliest inhabitants, who formed less than 1% of the population. So, as we all know, tensions between Tutsi and Utsi have been escalated during the 1950s and, you know, culminated in the 1959 Rwanda Revolution. That's, so the, those issues have always been there. Kagame began, began his uh, primary education in a school near the refugee camp where he and other Rwandan refugees, you know, learned how to speak English. Because I was as a result of that 59 uh, revolution that I was born in that camp. So he started to learn how to speak English, began to integrate into Ugandan culture. So he grew up more or less in Uganda. At the age of nine, he moved to respected Rwengoro Primary School, around 16 kilometers, that's 10 miles away. You know, he subsequently attended Ntare School, one of the best schools in Uganda, which was also the alma mater of future Ugandan president, Yuri Museveni. So you know that Museveni and Kagame, they have an history together. According to Kagame, the death of his father in the early 70s and the departure of Rugu Yema, an unknown location led to the decline in his academic performance at that time and an increased tendency to fight those who belittled the Rwandan population. He was eventually suspended from Otari, completed the studies at the old Kampala Secondary School. You know, so it's not been smooth for him because really he had royalty, royal blood in him, both from father and mother's side, you know. So after completing his education, Rwanda made Kagame made two visits to Rwanda in 1977 and 78. He was initially hosted by family members and, uh, and some of his former classmates. But upon arrival in Kigali, he made contact with members of his family. He kept a low profile on all these visits, you know. He probably knew he was going to spring a surprise in the future. So he kept a low profile on these visits, believing that his status as a well-connected Tutsi exile could lead to arrest. So on his second visit, he entered the country to Zaire rather than Uganda to avoid suspicion. Kagame used his time in Rwanda to explore the country, familiarize himself with the political and social situation, and make connections that will prove useful to him later in life. So, subsequently, between <coughs> 79 and 94, he was in the bush as a rebel working with Yuwere Museveni and all that before Museveni sponsored them. So, more or less, the rest is history, you know. Kagame and his good friend Ruigima remained de facto senior officers for the rebel movement at that time. But the change caused them to accelerate their plans, you know, at that time to, to invade Rwanda, you know, because of the Tutu Utu Tutsi issue. So the rest is uh, history. The Rwanda Civil War, you know, which started in October 1990, you know, the, the Hutu militia at that time killed one million, approximately one million uh, Tutsi people by machete within within 90 days when the whole world went to sleep. So 
that's pretty much that. I know in, in Rwanda they don't like talking about Hutu Tutsi and the genocide, so I'm not going to put too much emphasis on that. It's bad memory. Let's look at the positive. You know what uh, Kagame has done in recent time. What he has done. We've looked at the history and the economic uh, part of uh, Rwanda. So let's take a, a quick look at the success story of Kagame. We looked at Kagame also. So let's look at the success story of Kagame. When Kagame himself became president of Rwanda in 2000, he inherited a country that had been torn apart by genocide. That's also common knowledge. So to rebuild it, he had to rely on mostly uneducated guerrilla fighters and a handful of trained cadres, you know, from his uh, well-oiled and lubricated Tutsi militia. Even the most optimistic of analysts that said that he will succeed in this. But 19 years later, I mean, almost 20 years or even more, we have seen it that by the fifth year we knew it was going to succeed. So, but, I mean, the country is stable, prosperous, unified, and in large part reconciled. Social services such as education, healthcare, housing, and livestock are provided to the needy with no distinction of ethnicity or religion or origin. So, two forms of discrimination that characterize the government leading to the genocide against the Tutsi, which Kagame as leader of the Rwanda Patriotic Front brought to an end. Nobody is being discriminated against. That's success in Africa. When you get something on merit, not because you are Hutu, Tutsi, Yoruba, Swahili, you know, whether you are Indobele or Shona, what have you, you know. So outside of Africa, however, Kagame raised mixed feelings with human rights groups, classifying him as an authoritarian leader who curtails press and political freedom, presides over an undemocratic nation whose constitution is changed to remain present beyond its time. Well, the truth of the matter is that sometimes you have to be there for a long time to get this thing done. We saw it in Malaysia, we've seen it in Singapore, so it's no big, I mean. But there has to be a succession plan. So while justified, the critics make one mistake. They imply that these freedoms were already existed in Rwanda and that Kagame simply took them away. Well, that's, those, are not, that's, those, are, those are not true. You know, those, they are not facts. They weren't Kagame and Rwanda have been working to establish them in the country they never had. So he actually created the, the freedom. You know, Yeah, I know, I mean, he suppresses opposition once in a while, but in his own world, those opposition are people that want to bring down his government. So born in southern Rwanda in '57, Kagame's parents, like I said earlier, I fled the country during the anti-Tutsi pogrom when he was just two years old. He was raised in Rwanda community, refugee camps in Uganda, you know. So when he returned to Rwanda as uh, leader of the RPF, the country's coffer has been looted. An estimated 800,000 Tutsi and murdered Hutu has been killed, you know, approximately one million. The survivors were traumatized, the killers fearful of retribution, and the returnees destitute, and Rwanda was, was a failed state by any standard ability. 25 years after the genocide, the wounds are slowly healing. Survivors still see Kagame as a guarantor of their existence. He pardoned the perpetrators and set the country on a journey of unity and reconciliation, which is a major success, which is what we're talking about right now. Kagame has been tough in his style of governance, intransigent on corruption, populism, and divisive speech. Politicians with AIDS charged rhetoric have consistently faced harsh sentences and lengthy prison sentences, clearly meaning it's intolerable to him and to his government. Speech is regulated to prohibit ethnic prejudice, while democracy was trimmed and tailored to the peculiar predicament facing the Rwandan people. This was necessary to install new governmentality. That's why a lot of us say democracy affected by the West is different from how it will, I mean, the way you practice it in third world countries like Africa has to be unique to the culture of that continent, you know. So, a new unified country at some, was at somehow to be built with the same people 
killers and their victims living side by side with the unity of purpose, the betterment of their village and district and the country. So, in this endeavor, Kagame was acting with the people's mandate and within the ambit of the Rwandan constitution. Very, 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 very important. His mission as Rwandan leader is first and foremost to protect the Rwandan people from genocide by any means necessary. This mission, which is not sufficiently understood by the Western world, will probably also be passed on to his successor for two or three generations to come. So, I mean, he has said it. He's not going to step down until he sees someone that's going to hold the nation together. International analysts, champions of democracies, have not embraced Kagame's atypical approach, often assessing Rwanda's politics through a Western lens and thus missing the complexity of governing post-genocide. As a result of... Uh, all, all the happenings, you know, they may have missed what is arguably the most edifying case study in national transformation in the last 25 years. We just have to give it to him, you know. Rwanda mothers receive anti and postnatal health care and maternal mortality ratios in the country decreased by 77% between 2000 and 2013. Newborns are vaccinated. The city is clean and people can work safely at night. That is a statement of fact. Since last month, ministers no longer require personal security details. Your security will be guaranteed like that of other Rwandan citizens. They were told progress is visible. I mean, that, is, that statement is, is just, it's just the fact, you know. That's just the truth of the situation. You need to be, be in Kigali to know, go to Kitarama to know these things are fact. So from a Rwandan viewpoint, it's human rights, it's human rights, it's practice. And because they get what they want, that's human right to them. And they explain why in 2015, more than 60% of voters signed a petition calling for the constitutional change to allow Kagame to stand for election again after his term ended in 2017. Some outsiders seem concerned that Kagame has not groomed a successor. And although there are no crown princes in Rwanda, the president has chosen to groom thousands of young men and young women, in particular to lead the country into the future. The average age of his cabinet is 40. Women make up 50% of the cabinet, 61% of the parliament, and 50% of Supreme Court judges. That is a lot. I mean, the women all over the world will be happy about that. In, you, in Rwanda, they are not relegated. They are the front burner because that statistic proves that clearly. In 2018, Kagame chaired the African Union, championing potential game-changing initiatives, such as the Continental Free Trade Area, which was signed in the Rwanda capital, Kigali. African youth are enthusiastic about Kagame, it is not uncommon to see calls on social media for Kagame to be borrowed as the president of their respective country. I'm a Nigerian, I've said that if only we can have a Kagame, even if just for a full month to fix it because the guy delivered. The beauty of Africa is that every 25 years, the population renews itself. Over 70% of Rwandan population is what we call the Kagame generation, empowered, ambitious young people, free from the prejudice that animated their parents. Of course, Major challenges remain. In 2017, the unemployment rate was 16.7% and the youth unemployment rate 21%. But Kagame is betting on the country's MICE, that's meetings, incentive, conference, and exhibition. The strategy and information communication technology that they offer and they offer employment opportunities to absorb 250,000 young people who enter the job market each year. The bookmakers are still out. But with Rwanda's economy expanding by 8.6% in 2018 alone and, 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 and being stable, the country rated the second best place to do business in Africa. And if having swiped up on the human development, index, the indicators are looking promising. So, I mean, if we look at all those things, there is no way you cannot say that 
Kagame is the success. He managed the genocide. He came back. He didn't vilify anybody. He, the, the people that went to jail are people that were sent to jail by the United Nations. He united enemies. He, people that killed your mother, your father, they live together. You do business together. The country is quiet. Nobody is dying. There's stability. They are prospering. They're one of the best allies in, 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 in the world. I mean, Africa, so to say, not the world. But they are growing. They have uh, they are, they are, they are, their climate change policy is almost at par with that of any Western nation. So you have to give it to Paul Kagame. It's done well. The only shortcoming you might have right now is, okay, he's going to be in power forever. But like I said, Singapore has done the same thing. Malaysia has done the same thing. He's not going to live forever. I'm sure he has his plan. I'm not holding brief for him, but Paul Kagame has done well. We've all watched movies like Hotel Rwanda sometimes in April with that really put into proper perspective what happened in the genocide of 1992-93 and as you have all known discovered now from what i've said there was a similar genocide in 1959 so it just goes back to the same the colonialist angle the belgians created who was tutsi who was hutu who was twa you know and we keep going around in circle but this is a man that you know just excused himself from the colonialist bonding he kicked the girl running went for the jugular tidy up his country and now it's even against the law to, to talk about Hutu or Tutsi, you know. All they need now, they are moving on. Right now, if, if you're an asylee in Britain and they decide to deport you, Rwanda is accepting them, you know, and Britain is paying them, you know. So if you're probably going to find work for you on the farm or something. So the guy is thinking fast. Is unlike most other African leaders, you know, doesn't have a pot belly. He looks patterned for his age, fit for proper, one of the well-guarded people. You can look around him, he's physically fit, he leads by example. His people love him, you know, so that's just it. So we're going to call it a wrap there, and the conclusion is very simple. Kagame has done well. He's arguably the best Africa as today. Rwanda, Rwanda now is a tourist even, you know, it's, it's, everybody wants to invest in it. Rwanda, uh, Rwanda is even on the Arsenal jersey, you know, fly every year Rwanda. So you can, you can see what we're talking about. For a country that has little or next to nothing in resources, you have to give it to them. So we we'll call it a wrap. That's the end of this uh, wonderful topic. The topic remains Rwanda under Kagame, the bastion of hope and stability in East Africa. We have looked at the history of Rwanda, the economy. Then we looked at the man Kagame himself, and we looked at the successes of Kagame. And we looked at areas where he has been criticized and how he has countered those things and where people should really look. He is, in my opinion, a parameter and he has to for measuring what not just a third world leader should be, but an African leader. Take care. God bless you all. See you next week. Bye.